Last week we began what I hope will be a series of time that we spend in the Bible, specifically in the book of Mark. As is our custom, we try to, the majority of our time together, spend our time and devote it to a time in Scripture and stay in a particular book in such a way that it sets the agenda, that, that protects you from me just standing up here and spouting my opinions at you on a weekly basis, but instead we, we open the Bible in the next particular passage sets the agenda for our next particular thoughts and it begins to guide us as a group of people and we let it set the agenda and we want to do that in the book of Mark. So some several years ago I was in the Gulf of Mexico and I went into, I was very young and I went, it's called a glass bottom boat, right? I don't know if you've ever been on a glass bottom boat before, but I am confident that if you have, your experience of it was much better than mine in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, The Gulf of Mexico is brown underneath as well. Um, even with the glass, you look, oh, look at that, There's, that's murky. And every once in a while, something will, if you're in the right spot, it will clear out long enough to see something that flashes before your eyes, right? So th- this was my experience of water. I've learned that one of the best ways to get to know people is ask them about their experience of water. If you just said, hey, if I said water to you, naturally occurring water, what comes to your mind? You'll learn a lot about that person, right? Immediately someone's like, you know, fly fishing, right? Uh, or someone's like, I'm, you know, swimming, sunbathing, sitting on the beach. Um, the really cool people are like, when I say, hey, let's go to the lake, what do you want to do? They go, ice fishing, right? You know those people? And, and then they're, they, oh, what? Sit on, sit on the lake with a, with a bathing suit? That's silly. Let's wait till it freezes over and let's make a fire on top of it because that's, that's what we ought to do, right? And, 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 and I want to, I encourage you, have this kind of conversation. Your experience of water will vary because there's lots of different ways to experience it, whether you like snowing or snow skiing on it, whether you're, not, you're boating on it. Some of you like, um, for me, I believe you should be pulled behind a boat with some sort of a flotation device really fast. And some of you are like, boats are for sitting around and absorbing sun, right? You, you like boats with a pontoon or with an oar, for example. I disagree. So this, this experience, I hope will be similar in the fact that we will do something that, that will land at different places for all of us. And we want to do so in such a way. There's many different ways to read the Bible, to, to take the Bible in, to memorize the Bible, or to reflect upon the Bible. And so, for example, last week we, we spent most of our time just skimming through the Bible as it unfolded, I think, and unpacked the truth of the very first verse of the book of Mark. But our time in the Bible, in the book of Mark, will not be like a glass-bottom boat. It will be more like flying across uh, a scenic lake in a speedboat. Instead of spending, like most uh, most of our time we do as our custom, we kind of slowly and gradually work through the Scripture. I want us to run through this. I want you to see the breathtaking speed, not only with which Mark throws this information at us, but I want us to take it like he probably would have meant. And you'll see, and I think I can show you the way that he does that. So if you're a scatterbrained person, uh, if you have a short attention span, you're going to love Mark. Because Mark wrote this book for you. Because he is you. In fact, it's the shortest of the Gospels. And so many of you know that if if you're kind of new to the Bible, many of you know if you talk to me, the first thing I'll say is, you should read the book of Mark with me. It's very short. It's only 15 chapters long. It's, it's the shortest of the Gospels, and, and if you already kind of struggle with the discipline of reading big chunks of Scripture, and you, maybe you can't think of reading a long book at once, Mark puts everything into bite-sized versions for you, and it, it's kind of out of order. There's some of it that's, that's chronologically not jiving with us, but that's not his goal. His goal is to unpack this good news of Jesus, and he does it with breathtaking speed. So here we go, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the entire chapter, Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel that is good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the Jordan River, or the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went to Capernaum or Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. 
And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out, and he began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. People were coming to him from every quarter. I want you to see through the course of running as quickly through this particular book as possible all of the beautiful things that Mark wants to teach us about Jesus. Namely, that we see beginning here as he introduces Jesus to us and what God is doing through him, that Jesus demonstrates and announces the inauguration of a new kingdom. One that's marked by repentance and faith in the good news. That is the gospel. Jesus is bringing a new kingdom. And the first sermon he preaches, if you caught that, is the sermon he preaches throughout his public ministry. Repent, turn away, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It has arrived. It's in your midst, he'll even say later. There's a new king and he's he's bringing a new kingdom. This is the theme. And Mark goes through great lengths to demonstrate it to us. But I want you to catch the, this, the tone that he had. There's a word that, that is used over and over and over again by, the, by Mark as he writes this good news to us. Did you catch it? Immediately. Over and over and over again. So we love this. In our culture, like we are a culture of run-on sentences, are we not? I mean, complete thoughts, periods at the end of sentences? Absolutely not. We like to just begin the next thought with, and then, and then, and then so, and so then, and then, and then. This is how we talk. It's the way we communicate. And I want you to see, this is how Mark communicates as well. Did you catch the the run-on thoughts that that trailed on for verses? And then you go, and then immediately we did this, and then immediately we did this. And and the passage of time, can can you get the tone that he's telling? Some people tell stories with just facts, right? How boring is that? Right? Like, my neighbor, their house, it caught fire. The fire spread. I called 911. The fire was put out by the fire department. Facts. But how do we tend to really tell stories? Then they caught fire. And then, and then I did this. And then there was this. And then you wouldn't believe it. It was like, ah. And then I was like, ah. And then the fireman was like, ah. And we were like, you get what I'm saying? There's, there's all sorts of imitations. And there's like these beautiful things that come out in the story. And if you like that, if you relate to that, this is Mark for you. He's telling us the story of Jesus with, I hope you caught, with just unbridled and childish enthusiasm. 
like a childlike joy for what he has for us to hear about this Jesus. And immediately he did this. And then immediately it was like this. And then immediately he did this. And then immediately we were over here. Even though the first chapter may cover several weeks, if not years of time, Mark tells us like it happened in an instant. So I want you to catch his passion, his excitement for this thing that he tells us about Jesus. And his excitement about what it is that Jesus is doing. That Jesus is bringing a new kingdom. Everything that used to be will be no more. There is something new such that if you get this, if you begin to wrap your imagination and your thoughts around this, I promise you, you will find the words coming out of your mouth. This changes everything. This changes everything. You begin to realize that this thing that Jesus has done, so if you're in this room and, and you have deep doubts about Jesus and who he is, I'm, I mean, you are here on the right day because this is exactly who Mark wants to target his story to. If you've got questions about Jesus, let me, let me tell you enthusiastically who he is. Let me begin to open your mind and your imagination to the possibility that Jesus has done something that has changed everything forever. And that's what we believe. And the way that Mark goes about it is the way that we go about all of our time together. So he begins, he says, the beginning of the good news as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So he does the exact same thing, and you'll find the New Testament writers do this on a regular basis, that we do. We get together, we gather around this good news, and then we hold up this Bible and we let it speak authoritatively to us. Such that if I say something to you and it seems a little off or, or it seems like, man, that might not be accurate, we measure it and we measure our words and our thoughts and actions by what the Bible ultimately guides us to think and to do. And we assume, this is a strange thing in our culture, we assume that if there's something in us that clashes with something in the Bible, this is crazy, I'm going to blow your mind here and begin to invite you into this, we assume that we're wrong. As counterculture as that may be, if we, if we come up against something in the Bible and we think, oh man, I, I don't know how to explain that, it doesn't make sense to me, we assume that we're the ones that have to move. That's us. We're this weird group of people that when, when the Bible is open and we speak its words, we really begin to shape not our interpretation or the words of the Bible around our thoughts and context, but instead we begin to shape our own lives around God's word. It really is, as, as it tells us, as, as a psalmist writes, look, this word, this law, this speaking that God gives to us mysteriously that brings life to dead places, it really is a lamp into our feet without which we are in darkness. It's a light to our path without which we will stumble and kick and stub our toe on everything around us. And Mark sets the example for us. He says, this is the good news. And you know why I know it's good news? Let me show you how it's good news. Let me read to you out of Isaiah. This is important because for the rest of the book of Mark, he will quote Isaiah right and left. Of the prophets, this is his favorite one. And Isaiah shows up all the time. So if, if, you're, if you're challenging yourself maybe to reading the scripture, let me take a, a side note for 2016. This is a good place to start. And I would encourage you to read from Isaiah 40 all the way to the end of the book. And when you read through it, you'll find a, a breathtaking and startling similarity between the prophecy that Isaiah gives from Isaiah 40 on to the words that we read here in Mark. And I encourage you for the next couple of months to be reading the book of Mark. Um, ESV app is one of my favorites. It's one of the best uh, apps that you can find for, for, uh, for both Apple and Android devices. Um, it's just said ESV English Standard Version. I say that because in it, there's built in an audio Bible. An audio Bible that for me is the most tolerable to listen to, right? It's not 
Some Bibles are, are read. I don't know if you like to listen to this, but it sounds like listening to a, a Shakespearean actor. And then the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. I can't handle that for more than about 30 seconds. And so ESV is an app I commend to you. If you have a hard time sitting down and reading, just sit down for some time and let the ESV app read the Bible to you. And you can read through the 15 chapters of Mark, listening to it in a relatively short amount of time. I commend that to you. And while you're doing it, Dig into Isaiah chapter 40, because you will find in Isaiah chapter 40, word for word, the way that Mark wants to relate the good news of Jesus to us. And I'll go there for you right now, beginning in verse 1. After judgment upon judgment that's been heaped upon these people, that they've been deported and, and taken over by the Babylonians, the tone of the prophet Isaiah changes in chapter 40. And where he used to say, look, if you do this, this is the consequence. If you do this, that is the consequence. And these things have happened to you. In fact, bad things because of these things and these decisions you've made to rebel against God. But the tone changes in chapter 40, beginning with the very first word, verse 1. Comfort. Isaiah says, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended. That her iniquity, that is her sin and her rebelliousness, is now pardoned. She has received from the Lord's own hand double for all her sins. Her punishment is over. It's been absorbed. Verse 3, as a voice, now this will sound like Mark chapter 1, as a voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the, in the desert a highway for our God. This is good for us. We can see this pretty clearly in South Dakota. When we build highways, we just like pick an end point and make a straight line between here and there, right? And get an I-90, put on the, put on the cruise control, get in the back seat and just let it go, right? But, but, but in most parts of the world, it's not as flat. In fact, it's rare for people, places to be that flat. And so you have to build roads around things. And so he is saying here, look, God is going to do something and it's going to be like laying a, an eight-lane interstate right across the mountain. It's going to level it, put a hole right through it so that straight will be the path to God. And every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low. Sound like South Dakota? Get it? This is, this is what God is going to be doing. And the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places like a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh, that is all humans, shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord has now spoken. And so Mark, he begins to tell us this good news, and he says, look, there's a chunk of scripture, if you'll run back to Isaiah from chapter 40 onward, that begins to unpack for God's people who are under his judgment, the language of the exodus. So one of the most important stories of the Old Testament, God's people, they rebel against him. They end up in captivity by the Egyptians and they're in slavery. And God, not abandoning them or forsaking them, delivers them, sets them free in miraculous fashion. And almost every story of the Bible begins to unpack the love of God shown to them in the Exodus, that God sets these captives free. He sets people free. And Isaiah 40 begins to speak of God's love for these people with the language of the Exodus. And from here on out, this new Exodus that, that Isaiah tells us about is actually coming finally and completely in Jesus. And in the same way that these people would have remembered what it was like to hear from their ancestors when they were in slavery and how that narrative had given them shape and identity and informed who they believed that they were, in the same way that their identity had been changed because God had set them free, 
So also, Mark wants you to hear that your identity can be transformed from that of slave to that of a free person, from that of someone who is under the bondage and control of forces that, that hurt and harm you to the forces that God means to expose to you in Jesus Christ. Not to destroy you, as Jeremiah says, but to give you prosperity and blessing that lasts forever. And he explains that this is what John is doing. He's making the way for Jesus to show up. And it says in verse 4 that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of the repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, if you want to go back a couple of weeks, you can find this on our website uh, and, and in our podcast, which I encourage you to do, and you'll hear us explain our practice of baptism, but, but simply to state, just like this baptism that Jesus models for us, we believe that baptism is a mark of the change that comes from being buried in water and not being afraid of drowning and coming out alive. Just like because of Jesus, we confess sins. One day we go in the grave, but because of His grace, we don't stay there. We come out victorious. And that transformation follows up repentance. It comes alongside repentance and forgiveness of sins. So let me dig into some of the pictures here before we run through this. He says baptizing in the wilderness. And, he, and he's preaching a specific type of baptism. Uh, an encounter with water. Baptism, literally to be immersed or dunked or dipped all the way in. Such that if you stayed there, you would drown. So when we say, according to Romans 6, that we're baptized into Jesus' death, it's not just merely symbolic. We really are baptized into death. We are face-to-face. We are experiencing and participating in our own death. And yet, as I, I get to laugh about it, but it's kind of a serious matter, none of you are afraid of being drowned by the pastor in baptism, right? At least not until I just said that. Put that picture in your head. Because you know, now there's no way he's going to hold me down on the water. And there's this beautiful picture of the new life that comes. So also, are we not afraid of death? In the same way, we're not afraid of drowning in the water since we've been baptized into Jesus' death, according to Romans 6. So also, will we be resurrected just like Him? And because, in the same way, you're not afraid of the pastor drowning you in baptism, so also we see a picture of the fearlessness that we have now because of Jesus in the face of death. Death is no threat. There is no such thing as a death threat for a Christian because death is no longer a threat to us. Jesus has destroyed it. But this picture of passing through water is throughout the entire Bible. So run with me through, if you will, I can kind of run you through the narrative. The very beginning, the first story where God creates all things, it says that God's Spirit simply hovered over the face of the water. And throughout the entire Bible, Water represents and is symbolic of chaos, of disorder, of disarray. And one of the first things that God does is when He creates things out of nothing, there is just water and His Spirit is hovering over the chaos and nothingness. And what does God do? He speaks and He brings life out of death and He brings order out of the chaos. And He separates the expanse of the water to create life. Because we're not water-bound beings, he, the, somehow he separates the expanse. And again, if you want to explain this, man, go for it. This is, this is we're going to spend eternity trying to figure out what he means by this. But like, he separated the chaos so that Adam and Eve, these people, life came out of the chaos. He took the chaos, separated it, took the disorder and disarray and made life and something beautiful. And not just life, but good life such that apples don't just sustain you and, and keep you from being hungry. They're actually delicious and are good. This is the thing that God does. But what happens? It immediately brings life out of the chaos, out of the water, 
But what does Adam do? He transgresses the covenant. He had one job, right? The, the picture of humanity that the Bible paints for us, even from the beginning, look, look, you humans, you have one job. Don't eat from this particular tree in the middle of the garden, and you couldn't do that. And so what did he do? He had life that came out of the chaos, but then immediately when he was delivered out of the chaos and was given life, he transgressed God's covenant and, and rebelled against God. So they get kicked out. A few chapters later, the chaos begins to take over. The rebellious, rebelliousness of human beings takes over the entire world such that the chaos of water, the great flood, does what? It wipes the slate clean. Completely destroys all of the evil people. And what does God do? In His mercy, He doesn't allow all of them to be wiped off the face of the planet. He delivers Noah. He chooses for Himself a people to love and to cherish and to save He and His family. Amazing, right? You would, oh, thank you, God. You saved me from the chaos. He delivered through water. And what does Noah do? The minute he gets a chance, he says the first story after, the, that Noah, they, after being on the boat for a long period of time, they make it to dry land. It says that Noah plants a vineyard, makes a bunch of wine, gets drunk, and curses his sons. Right? So look, I just saved you. I delivered through you through the chaos of the water, the chaos that has destroyed the earth. And, and you, couldn't, you couldn't keep your act together for more than 10 seconds. And the first thing he did, he gets angry, gets drunk, curses his sons. So the chaos abounds and, and the disobedience abounds so that the people are in captivity. And then finally God says, look, I'm going to deliver you. And then the story of Exodus develops for us a story of God saving his people out of bondage. And what happens? They go to the Red Sea after a miraculous turn of events, and there they are on the, on, the, on the Red Sea, wondering if they should turn back and surrender to the enemy. And God does a miraculous thing. He opens up and parts the waters, and they pass through the chaos of the waters on dry land, being delivered through the water. But then what do they do? The first thing they do when they get to the wilderness, even after watching all of Pharaoh's army drown in the water, the first thing they do is, man, this is awful. We should go back. This is terrible. Instead of being grateful to God for saving them, instead they make gods of their own. They begin to fashion idols. And they wander in the wilderness until finally they die there until the next generation is ready to take hold of God's promise. So what do they do? They wander up to the Jordan River and they see the promised land that God has set out for them. And once all of the other people have died, the new generation crosses the water into this promised land until they find a place, they take it over, and then we see a new kingdom set up and a new king where David is has his throne in Jerusalem. Do you get it? This is what God does. He saves people out of the chaos symbolized for us by water, and every single time, the people immediately turn against God. And Mark wants to tell us a story about baptism that is radically different from the kind of experience with the chaos of water than we've ever heard. You see, this Jesus is different. He's not like Adam who failed the minute he was given life. He's not like Noah who rebelled against God the minute he was saved. He's not like Moses and the Israelites who rebelled against and wandered into the desert. Instead, he is the perfect Adam. He is the good and true Noah. He is the good and true and good and better Moses, he is the one who, being delivered through the water, responds rightly. He's like the real Jonah. Right? You know the story of Jonah? We usually boil the story of Jonah into an argument of whether you really believe a big fish swallowed a person. But do you really catch the beauty of the story of Jonah? God saves people. People turned on Jonah. They said, Jonah, you're a sinner. And they threw him into the water to be dead. And what does God do? 
He saves Jonah. This is crazy. I mean, this is just ridiculous. He saves Jonah through a fish who delivers him safely where he ought to be three days later. Wink, wink. Right? Delivers from the chaos three days later to where he ought to have been. Saved him in three days. Get, you get this? This is a new story of water that Mark introduces to us. And this Jesus is different. This Jesus is different. He's bringing a kingdom that's marked by a radical obedience and perfection. A radical love and a radical selflessness. That when he passes through, did you see what happened? He immediately was what? By the Spirit, driven into the wilderness. Where there we find he did not sin, but instead he was tempted. And God delivered him from it. This Jesus doesn't fail. So what does this tell us about us? There's a picture here of human nature and of the response of repentance that John talks about and that Jesus jumps into that's really important for us. You see, we often have a false view of repentance because we have a false view of our own disposition. And I want to show you how radically countercultural this is. Genesis 6, the Bible tells us this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. Genesis 8, the intent of man's heart was evil even from his youth. Psalm 14 says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if they are any who understand, who seek after God, but they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt, and there is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 51 says it this way, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Even from birth, there is is a sinful tendency. I love this. If you don't believe this, come hang out with toddlers, right? Like, you don't have to teach them how to sin. I mean, you you bit that that person and took the thing from them? They didn't learn that from me. We don't bite. I I don't know who did that. I've never bit someone and taken them from them. They learned that on their own. From birth, it says in Psalm 51, Isaiah 64 says it this way, For all of us has become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments that is disposable in nature. You see, this is radically countercultural, and this idea of repentance digs right under the assumptions that drive our culture, namely that you are a really good person. We dug into this last week just a little bit, that God is revealing himself and introducing himself to the world as a savior. And the reason that's necessary is because we are no good at this on our own. Did you catch the story of the Bible that I just unfolded for you? You're like, no, no, really. And, and this is what I really believe. When he, oh, I know, I know Adam failed, right? I know he messed up. I know Noah messed up. I know Moses messed up. I know Jonah messed up. I know all those messed up. But if God saved me, I would be different, right? If God would deliver me, it would be different. And we have no evidence to base that on, right? We have no evidence to think, yeah, 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 they all failed. Yeah, they saw the miracles of God. Yeah, they saw the, the Nile turn to blood and then still doubted. But you, you, yeah, you, you're, you're the Savior. You'll do better this time. Here's why I say this, because sometimes this, and I would say even right now, some of you are clinging to this false promise. God, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll do better. God, if you'll just get me through this, I promise I'll be different. God, I know I made a mess. I made a wreck. I know I destroyed relationships. I know I've made these mistakes. But God, if you'll just let me survive the consequences of these, I promise I'll be better. I'll do better and I'll be different. 
Sound familiar? And all the while believing that deep down inside there's some good that just has to be dug deeply enough to find. And here's the good news, that the deepest and the darkest evil is not out there and alien to you. It is not in the world, but instead the deepest and darkest evil, if you will look in the mirror deeply enough, is inside of you and me. No one has destroyed more relationships in my life than me. No one has harmed me by bad decisions more than me. No one has put me in awful situations more than me. And it's our tendency to say, God, if you'll just get me out of this mess, I promise it will be different. And all the while, every time God gives mercy, whether it's Adam, Noah, Jonah, or you, on the other side of that deliverance is waiting the deep, dark horrors in the depths of your own heart. You see, if God does deliver you from the circumstances, it will only be a matter of time before you begin to run to your own solutions. It's only a matter of time. I've watched this. I, I'm, I, I, I seriously watch people undermine the gospel. There's a, there's a phrase that we often believe is in the Bible, and I've seen this. I watched a man fight cancer and come to the end of his life, right? Because chemotherapy and, and radiation basically kill the cancer like 10 seconds before they kill you. And if you can survive it, the cancer doesn't. I watched a man delivered through this. And he's like, pray for healing. Yes, I will pray for healing. Pray that God is teaching. And he was clinging to, to Jesus and clinging to the hope. And then right after he finally got a clean bill of health, I, I hung out with him. I said, what do you feel like God taught you in all this? What do you feel like God really showed you in all this? And you know what his response to me was? He said, man, I feel like God really showed me. God helps those who help themselves. He really believed. He really believed that he, because he had diligently fought cancer and he had, he had, had his will set on fighting cancer, that, that he end of the day had done this and God had honored his effort to save him and ultimately he is grateful to God not for saving him but for helping him save himself and this is the prevailing culture that we live in is it not you got a problem fix it it's messed up here go somewhere else this stuff's broken read this book it'll clean you up and all the while ignoring that the deepest and darkest evil is hiding inside your own heart And those times when you're squeezed and those words come out of your mouth, those words come out of your mouth full of evil and malice, that wasn't an accident. That wasn't a bad habit. That was what's really waiting inside of you. And Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart come the words of the mouth. This is the human experience. And so what does John say? What does Jesus preach? Repent. Repent. Turn away from that which is broken. And don't simply turn away from that which is evil in the world. Because all of us can see that even the Pharisees. But turn away from the evil that is in your own heart. Turn away from that which is broken inside of you. Turn away from the things that are evil, even the things that you don't want to admit to yourself. And when you realize that the evil in the world is actually mostly a result of the evil that exists in the human heart, even from birth, even when a toddler biting and stealing and screaming and hitting because that's just how they relate, demonstrates to us this thing that ultimately needs to be changed. Oh, sure, you can teach the two-year-old to stop hitting. You can teach them to control their own behavior. But you know adults. It's not hitting or biting. It's just a grown-up version of it. 
Because the evil that exists in the world actually exists to the core of our own identity. And we must turn from it. We must admit that that which is evil goes all the way to our soul. And when you do, when you do, you will not be met with shame, but friend, you will be met with the good news that Jesus has done something to give you a new life, a new hope. A word of good news is for you. Not a word of shame, like shame on you for being evil, but instead Jesus says, look, I've done it. I've passed through the waters of chaos. I've come out on the other end victorious. And I have identified with you in such a way that now you can have the joy that your own heart is is unable to find. And heaven even rips open. Did you catch when when he was baptized? Heaven rips open to describe for us this connection between the kingdom that Jesus sets up in heaven as it comes to earth. So let me put out to you just maybe a couple of false forms of repentance. And we want to leave it there because if we don't catch this particular sermon that Jesus continually preaches, then we'll miss what he really wants. We turn away from what is broken. You see, not only is Jesus bringing about a new kingdom, but he has the power And he has the ability to do something that we cannot do for ourselves. He has the power to declare freedom to the captives, just like the word that was given from Isaiah to God's people. He has the power to declare freedom from the captives. But it's not just things that are in circumstances and physicalities. It is also to the spiritual realm. Did you you catch the eternal nature of Jesus' power? Mark in his scatterbrained way, and then, and then he healed somebody, and then, and then he cast out some demons, and then he was casting out a bunch of demons. And he didn't, did you catch that? But halfway through the chapter, he didn't even name names at a point. It's like it was just there were too many to count. And then he did this to demonstrate for you that not only does Jesus have authority to heal, as we'll see this next chapter, we see that Jesus also has the authority to transform even things on an eternal level. Jesus has this power. Jesus fulfills this promise. And even though the sinfulness and the hate and evil that goes all the way to our heart corrupts us completely, His goodness saves us completely. And even though the depth of sorrow and doubt that fills us entirely, it is no match for the saving grace of God that redeems us entirely. So here's what false repentance looks like. Let me give you a couple of examples. Denial. I'm not that bad. If there's ever a sense in which we begin to talk in such a way that we're not that bad as if to justify our own sinfulness, you're heading for a place that has no hope. And even your your fake and, and phony attempts at that kind of justification, you'll find to be deeply unsatisfying. Right, so, so this, is, this is the blame game. Have you seen this? I did this, but I only did it because I was, you know, in this circumstance. Ever heard that? I did it because of this. Well, hey, you failed. And instead of going, forgive me, I failed, we go, you know what, it, it was because of this. Oh, you're late? You're late. Why are you late? Because of this and this and this. Oh, it wasn't you. You weren't in control of your own life today. It was someone else. Something else. Oh, you made this bad decision? It was because of this. This is what I love. It's because I was drunk. I said a lot of stuff because I was drunk. No, friend, you said it because there's evil in your heart. The alcohol just talked you into actually letting it out of your mouth, right? I only did that because I was wasted. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, because that's not who you really are. Get it? We lower the inhibitions. The real self comes out. And this is our culture. We want to always justify that there's a reason or an excuse, not an underlying set of priorities that caused our behavior to look a certain way, but there's something else, and it's out there, and it's their fault. 
beware, friend, when we jump into this, we're beginning to exalt our own self and we are beginning to minimize the greatness with which our own despair and brokenness can affect the people around us. Because that person isn't just a harm to themselves because they're excusing or justifying their actions. You know what this looks like. That person's ready to hurt the people around them. Ever been harmed by a person who just really believed that they were doing the best thing and making the best decision they could at that time? Felt the effects of betrayal by a person who justifies their actions? Begin to see the brokenness of this. Because even to justify one's own actions doesn't create a solution. Blame all those people. Blame all those people. Make yourself believe it's their fault and what they did is what has brought you to this end. But here's what happens almost over and over and over again, that same behavior will come out given the next opportunity. And to this and to our culture, we say, no, that, that evil is not their fault. It's yours. That brokenness, that decision that you made that has harmed you and others, that's not their fault. That's not a circumstance that dictated this. Not that circumstances don't play a, a, a profound role, but, but that sinfulness is you. And that's why it is such good news that Jesus has identified with you and with me. So if you find someone making excuses, or you find yourself in denial or justifying your action by comparing your actions to the people around you, then friend, be careful. You're missing out on really good news. You're negating the, the magnitude of this good news. The other thing I think we'll see is that we minimize the goodness and greatness of God. We saw this last week more vividly, but we, we believe in a false gospel based on a false assumption about who God really is. And all it takes is a break in this before we begin to minimize how good God is and the repentance that we experience doesn't bring about any real joy because it's false. It's fake. It's based on a faulty assumption about God. So if you really just worship your comfort, we saw this, we call this uh, the prosperity gospel in some different manifestations, that we really believe that our comfort is God. And we have to lay down whatever we can onto that altar to sacrifice in order for our comfort to be a possession of our own. Including if it's your spouse, your friends, your relationships, your boss, your coworkers. If, if they get in the way of your comfort, friend, they go on the altar, right? They're the sacrifice. They die for the sake of the worship of the God of your comfort. But what happens when that fails? What happens when you don't receive that comfort? Then you begin to belittle the true nature of God. Well, I don't really have to act in a certain way because God really isn't that good. My comfort isn't that great. My comfort level is fairly mediocre at the moment, so therefore I really don't have to abide by anyone's rules. After all, I'm God and my comfort is God, so therefore there's really no need to change anything I do. You caught this? And if this kind of person will sell everything, will sacrifice every relationship for a perceived end that is the most lonely and desolate I think you'll find. And it all comes from believing that something else is God. And so therefore, there's a new good news. And that good news is sand in a desert. It's a mirage. It does not satisfy. But we recognize when the Spirit opens our eyes to this that the hurt that we experience typically is because of our own sin, our own sinfulness. And we, knowing that God is good and holy and merciful, do not seek judgment, but we seek the mercy he offers us in Jesus. And we turn away from that which is evil, even if that evil is inside of us. We turn away from it. 
And instead of elevating our own sense of self or, or dragging down the holiness of God, we elevate the sense of our own sin. We are not ashamed of it. See, the self is a factory of sin. And to ignore this is to experience a fake repentance and therefore no real joy. So this is specifically for some of you who would call yourselves Christian. You feel like you're missing out on the greater joy. And the reason is because deep down inside, you don't want anyone to know about your sin. You don't want anyone to find out about the evil that exists in your own heart. You would rather compare yourself to people that you perceive to be worse than you so that others will not see you in a negative light. And for some of you, you're missing out on the greatest joy because you've missed out the good news that God wants to save you from all of your sin. All of it. You know that day when you did that thing that you swear you'll never do again? Your worst day. The day you betrayed. The day you harmed others. The day you did the thing that has marked you for life. It was on that day while you were dead in your trespasses that God on high looked down and sent His Son Jesus to die for you. While you were still the enemy of God, Jesus displayed God's love for us by dying in our place. And the punishment that you deserved on that day for that sin, Jesus gladly bore on the cross. Friends, see how good this news really is. And see how much of it you're missing out on when you believe that your sin is not as bad as it is in the sight of God. Are you ashamed to have a person talk to you about your own sin? Well, then your sorrow is really a worldly sorrow based on your own perception of your own acceptance. And it brings about death. Do you often see other people's sin as more egregious than your own? Are the sins of other people your hobby horse? Are the sins of others the things that you are happy to protest and stand up boldly against? All the while forgetting that the depth of sin that exists in the world is no deeper than it is in your own heart. Then you might be missing out. That's a worldly sense of sorrow. And it may feel good for a moment, but you know this as well as I do. It gives no joy. There is no peace. And so if you have a sense of your own self-righteousness to the point where right now you're scared to death of the people around you finding out about your sin, I have good news. Jesus has already outed you. He has proven the world as sinners on the cross. And the cross is the ultimate example and evidence that you and I needed help. Such that when we come to him for mercy, he doesn't reject us. But did you see what he did over and over and over again as people stumbled toward him? Did you catch that? It was like a litany. A litany of stories that just kind of ran together. And Mark is in scatterbrained self, and immediately they did this, and immediately they did this. People started following, and then immediately people started getting healed, and then immediately people who were oppressed started getting set free. Friend, hear the good news. Over and over and over again, Mark tells us a story of how Jesus heals many, of how Jesus gives good news to the poor, how he cleanses the leper. You think you're messed up? Did you catch the leper? This highly contagious person who is a reject in society comes to Jesus, and Jesus not only says you are healed, but did you see the means by which he healed them? In verse 41, moved to pity, stretched out his hand, and he touched the leper. He put his clean and perfect hands on the highly contagious, highly unclean person. Friend, if that doesn't show you the good news that God is not out to get you, but instead here to save you, then I don't know what will. He wants to see right through your own excuses and show you that even in the dirtiest, most contagious and dangerous parts of your heart, He is not afraid to touch and hold you close. 
He's not afraid. He's not grossed out by your sin. He's not freaked out by it. Instead, he has enduring and everlasting mercy the minute you begin to lay it at his feet. So friends, let us be a people. Let us be a people who know so deeply that God's love is so good that we readily and happily open our failures to the world. Not so that they would see us in some better light, but that they would see Jesus more clearly. Let us then repent from all that is contrary to God's kingdom. Let's repent from unmercifulness. Let's turn away from the shame that even exists inside of us. And let's begin to believe the good news that Jesus really is restoring all things. He has passed through the waters of death so that you and I will pass through the adversity victorious in his name on the other side. Let us embrace this good news. Let us cast our sin openly at him and let the feeling of forgiveness rush over us. Let us dispense with the assumption that the problem is the world and the world is out there. Let us dispense with the notion that the real sinners are out there and they need God's grace. And let us humbly run to Jesus. Let us humbly bow before Jesus and confess him as Lord so that we experience the real restoration. There's a new exodus, a new setting free. The captives are being set loose. And they're being set loose by a God who loves them, who doesn't mean to judge them, but a God who means to restore them and give them new life. And he has come to start the healing. And that healing is available for you and for me. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are good and you are kind. We thank you that you are merciful to us. We thank you that you show your kindness even when we least deserve it. You demonstrate for us your love while we are yet sinners, while we are yet enemies. It is while we are wandering from you, a wretch that you love us at your most. You are not in love with some alternate version of ourselves. You're not waiting for us to get our lives together to demonstrate your love, but instead, while we are rebelling against you, you have demonstrated your love for us fully and completely in Jesus. God, those of us who have never opened our imagination and thoughts for this to be true, would you begin to stretch their thoughts? This this crazy, unbelievable, miraculous thing that God has done for us in Jesus can give joy on an eternal scale. Would we begin to open our eyes to believe it? Would the scales fall off and we begin to see you, Jesus, in all your glory and your majesty, not as, not as just a good teacher, but not as a tyrant who comes to take over, but as a good and loving king who lays down his life for his kingdom. He does not send his subjects to die in his place, but instead he runs before them, before they even know they need it to die in theirs. Help us to declare this and embrace this in all the deep and dark places that we we don't want anyone to know when we begin to open up our minds to the possibility that you already know those secrets and you mean to shower your grace on us such that your kingdom is actually a kingdom of good news. We turn to you in this. In Jesus' name, amen.